1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: A trunk that holds the secrets of an unlikely killer. I found the interior splattered with blood. A collection of mysterious rocks that may be proof of an alien intelligence. People aren't making this stuff up, they're seeing it. And a curious orb that tells of the rise and fall of a bizarre cult. Everyone thinks these people are nuts. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Stockton, California is located amidst miles of inland waterways, deep channels and rivers, which long ago made it a center of shipping and industry. And here, in this port city, is one institution that celebrates the region's role in the American story, the Hagen Museum. Founded in 1928, it boasts stunning oil paintings of the Yosemite Valley by Albert Bierstadt, the nation's first caterpillar tractor, and a collection of artifacts from the town's earliest days as a frontier outpost. But there is one relic on display that tells one of Stockton's darkest tales. It is
0: three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and two feet tall. It is made of wood, has metal corners, clasps, and
2: buckles. Despite this ordinary exterior, it's what's on the inside of this trunk that first shocked curator Todd Rustaller. When I opened it
0: up, I found the interior splattered with
2: blood. This artifact was once at the center of a gruesome case of love and betrayal that scandalized Stockton over 100 years ago. What horrific crime did this trunk conceal? March 24, 1906, Stockton, California. After finding a trunk with no destination tags, porters at the Southern Pacific Rail Depot tossed the luggage aside. Hours later, it begins to attract attention.
0: The Southern Pacific personnel couldn't help but notice that there was an extremely unpleasant smell emanating from the trunk.
2: When a police officer pries it open, the source of the odor is revealed. He was rather shocked to see the shoeless feet of a corpse. The trunk's lining and the male corpse are covered in blood. And police begin to speculate about this gruesome discovery.
0: They had initially postulated that he had been bludgeoned to death.
2: Investigators are able to track down the delivery man who brought the trunk to the railroad station, and he tells them that he picked it up at a nearby hotel. When the hotel's landlady sees the body, She identifies the victim as a former guest at her hotel, named Albert N. McVicker. And she explains that McVicker stayed at her hotel with a woman who she believed was his wife.
0: Police then inspected the room where the couple had stayed. They found no blood, no signs of struggle. They did find photographs of
2: the woman as well as the deceased. Police wire a description of the woman to every town between Stockton and San Francisco. And days later, an officer in Antioch, California, stops someone who matches the description. The officer asked her if she was Mrs. McVicker,
0: and she rather indignantly replied, no, my name is Ledoux, Emma Ledoux.
2: Under questioning... Emma Ledoux asserts that she did not commit the crime, but admits to spending the night with Albert McVicker, who she says was her ex-husband. The press feeds off of the salacious story and quickly convicts Emma in the court of public opinion. As investigators dive into this lurid case... They uncover more information about the woman at the center of it all. Emma, unfortunately, had a rather sordid past. Emma and McVicker were indeed once husband and wife. But she had filed for divorce two years before his murder. Investigators discover that she had then begun a relationship with a man named Eugene Ledoux, who she married the following year. But there was one problem. Emma's divorce from Albert McVicker was never finalized. Some speculate that he threatened to expose Emma as a bigamist. Investigators pieced together a theory that she enticed her estranged husband to Stockton in order to get him out of the picture once and for all. But the unassuming Emma Ledoux claims that there was no way she could have bludgeoned the 6-foot-1 McVicker to death. Physically, she was about five foot three, weighed about 110 pounds. So could this petite woman really have committed such a brutal crime? In search of answers, investigators order an autopsy on the body of Albert and McVicker. And the toxicology report produces a suspicious finding.
0: It was determined that he died from the combined effects of chloral hydrate and morphine in quantities that
2: could kill him five, ten times over. That would explain how Emma Ledoux could have taken down the imposing McVicker.
0: Once McVicker was unconscious on the bed, Emma rolled McVicker's head into the trunk and then lifted the legs and crammed them down
2: But one thing continues to vex investigators. Why was there so much blood inside the trunk if none was found in the hotel room where he was murdered? Further study of the victim's body reveals the answer.
0: McVicker was not dead when he was placed
2: in the trunk. Hours later, the poison stopped McVicker's heart. But when the trunk reached the station, rigor mortis had not yet set in. During
0: the kicking of the trunk onto the platform, he suffered injuries, causing his nose to bleed, and that led to the copious amounts of blood that were
2: discovered. In 1906, a jury finds Emma Ledoux guilty of the murder of Albert McVicker. She is sentenced to life in prison. And today, over 100 years later, this blood-stained trunk is on display at the Hagen Museum in Stockton, California, still bearing the shocking evidence of one unlikely woman's devious crime. Las Vegas, Nevada, in this glitzy metropolis famous for casinos and showgirls, is a museum dedicated to exploring America's explosive past the National Atomic Testing Museum. On prominent display is a B-53 nuclear bomb, a reactor from the Mars rover program, and part of a radiation testing tower. But perhaps the most unusual relic here has nothing to do with atomic destruction. These artifacts look like chunks of coal. Nothing extraordinary to look at unless you learn about the history of it. As renowned journalist George Knapp can attest, some people believe they hail from somewhere literally out of this world. There's a genuine mystery at work here. So what are these curious objects? And how do they defy all earthly explanation? January 29, 1986. Dalnagorst, Russia. It's a typical winter's day in this remote mining town on the east side of the country. But shortly after nightfall, residents notice something unlike anything they've ever seen.
3: Hundreds of witnesses saw this red glowing sphere come out of the sky flying parallel to the earth and uh, it was flying relatively slow.
2: People watch in amazement as the mysterious object follows an erratic flight pattern.
3: It drops, then it rises, then it drops again and rises.
2: Moments later, it loses altitude and appears to crash into a nearby mountain, producing a sea of flames. Witnesses say it's an intense heat.
3: Burns, soil, rock, trees, everything. They can see the
2: fire from miles away. Then residents notice something even stranger. They
3: see these yellow orbs, much like the the red one that crashed, flying around in the vicinity of the hill, flashing beams of light down in the direction of of the ground, as if they were looking for something. Moments later,
2: the unusual yellow orbs disappear into thin air, and it seems as though the extraordinary incident is over. Residents are bewildered by the bizarre events, leaving many to ask what exactly did fly into the mountain. The presence of a nearby Air Force base leads some to believe that a military aircraft may have been involved. But aviation reports suggest
3: otherwise. There had been no flights of any kind in that time period that would explain that this as being some conventional craft. That explanation does not fly.
2: Others think that the object's unconventional flight path offers a clue to its origins. There are many in the UFO field who said, this sounds like an alien spacecraft. In the days following the event, Soviet government officials identify the site of the impact and cordon off the area. They conclude that the crashed object has been destroyed, and nearly all that remains are small fragments on the ground, like these specimens on display at the National Atomic Testing Museum. So what are these traces of debris? Could they be objects from another world? In
4: 1986, residents of Dalnagorst, Russia,
2: witness something truly bizarre. A flying red sphere that crashes into a mountain. When government officials race to the scene, nearly all that remains are some scattered pieces of debris. But could these small, rock-like objects be evidence of an extraterrestrial craft? In a quest for answers, Russian scientists conduct a battery of tests on the mysterious material. After examining the object's physical properties, they discover that these seemingly ordinary pieces of rubble are not natural. In fact, they are chunks of synthetic metal. It was a technological development. It was created through an industrial process. But a closer examination offers little insight into exactly how they were made. When you use high heat in an industrial process, there's sulfur, there's phosphorus, there's none of that there. So they don't know what was used to heat them. And when researchers delve deeper, nothing can prepare them for what unfolds right before their eyes. They do some tests in these cloud chambers, which allow them
3: to analyze the chemical composition of the material. And they found that when they heated it up, some of the elements disappeared entirely. And then new elements
2: somehow got in. And they were completely mystified. Scientists reach a shocking theory. The technology used to produce these materials does not exist on Earth. We don't know what it is, and we don't know
3: how it was made. Naturally, a lot of people have speculated this is of alien origin.
2: Some believe that these artifacts offer proof that what residents saw crash into the mountain was, in fact, an extraterrestrial spacecraft.
3: Millions of people all over the world throughout recorded history have been seeing these weird things in the sky. People aren't making this stuff up. They're seeing
2: it. And these pieces on display at the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas will forever remind us of one of the most famous UFO sightings in history. Coney Island. This seaside retreat on the southern tip of Brooklyn, New York, has for generations attracted Gotham residents with a taste for the bizarre and a thirst for adventure. And here, beneath the shadows of the iconic Wonder Wheel, is a small storefront museum where vintage posters and early amusement rides bring the unique history of America's playground to life. But according to director Charles Denson, One seemingly common piece of jewelry, tucked away in a glass case, tells this eclectic community's most unusual and incredible story. It's
5: pink and white pearls on a gold chain, and it spells the name Carol.
2: So how is this item linked to a controversial attraction that forever changed the landscape of modern medicine? It's the early 1900s. The field of medicine is quickly evolving greater specialization and the development of the x-ray machine are helping to ensure more efficient patient care. But despite these advances, there is one malady that continues to plague thousands of American families. Premature birth.
5: A lot of doctors didn't think premature babies would develop into normal human beings. And they didn't think it was worth the effort to try to save them. But one
2: ambitious doctor thinks that the lives of these fragile newborns can be spared and is willing to risk his reputation and career to prove it. It's 1903. Dr. Martin Cooney is a 33-year-old pediatrician living in New York. His primary interest lies in promoting a strange new invention designed to maintain a sterile environment for babies born prematurely. The device is called an
5: incubator. It had ventilator tubes that pulled in purified air. It had tubes with heated water that kept them at the proper temperature. But
2: despite a series of successful trials, Cooney finds the scientific community hesitant to accept this nascent piece of technology. It seemed experimental at the time. What the doctor needs is a way to sell the merits of this new medical device to the world. And he gets that chance when a New York showman named Frederick Thompson approaches him with an unusual offer. Thompson wants to set up a baby incubator sideshow at his new Coney Island Amusement Center called Luna Park. Fred Thompson thought that the baby
5: incubators would be an incredible attraction for Coney Island.
2: But a theme park seems like an unorthodox environment in which to display sick children.
5: Coney Island had Siamese twins. There were a lot of unusual people, so a lot of people felt the sideshows were
2: exploitive. But Coney Island does offer the physician something critically important, thousands of daily visitors.
5: Cooney's ultimate goal was to save the lives of children and to get acceptance for the incubator, to have it put in hospitals. Coney Island was the showplace of the world, and he realized that that's where he would get the most exposure. Determined to prove the incubator's
2: worth, Cooney seizes on Thompson's proposal. But will the doctor be able to convince the medical community that his treatment is legitimate amidst the bizarre spectacles that inhabit Coney Island? That summer, on Luna Park's bustling midway, the Baby Incubator exhibit opens its doors. Visitors are charged an entrance fee of 25 cents to marvel at the impossibly small bodies inside the machines. It was
5: awe-inspiring where people could come in and see this human life being
2: saved. But Cooney's unusual attraction is not without its detractors. Just months after the Sideshow's grand opening, the Brooklyn Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children launches an official investigation into the doctor's practices. They
5: felt that the children were being exploited. They wanted to shut down his exhibit. With the
2: future of New York's forgotten children hanging in the balance, will Dr. Cooney's Coney Island Sideshow be closed?
4: At plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
2: Bombas. big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's 1903. Dr. Martin Cooney is being investigated by a child welfare organization over his controversial Coney Island Sideshow. This remarkable exhibit displays living premature babies inside a recent invention, an incubator. Critics say he's exploiting helpless young infants. The doctor says he's saving lives. So will this unconventional attraction be shut down? In the face of the allegations, Dr. Cooney defends his operation, not as a sensational sideshow, but as a free, unorthodox hospital. The parents never had to pay a fee.
5: The entire exhibit was supported by the admission price. But perhaps Cooney's best defense is his ability to save the lives of otherwise hopeless infants. The way he would fight this is to say, what choice do they have? Either they come to
2: my exhibit or they die. The community rallies behind the hero doctor, and the Brooklyn Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children drops its investigation. Over the next four decades, Dr. Cooney's Incubator Expo flourishes, becoming Coney Island's longest-running exhibit.
5: He's credited with saving over 6,000 lives, babies that wouldn't have survived if it hadn't been for his exhibit.
2: One child he rescued is Carol Ann Boyce Heinisch, who, like all babies under Cooney's care, received an identification necklace when she entered the incubator in 1942, and it's now encased at the Coney Island History Project. And after 40 years of baby saving showmanship, the larger medical community finally accepts the audacious doctor's pioneering work. With baby incubators implemented into hospitals worldwide, Cooney promptly shuts down his sideshows. And today, this tiny chain commemorates the unorthodox practices and groundbreaking work of a medical maverick that provided a future for the world's tiniest miracles. Florida's West Coast is known for its spectacular golf courses, warm waters, and pristine sands. But just 15 miles from the beach town of Fort Myers is a very different tourist attraction. This collection of long abandoned houses and rambling gardens is called the Koreshian State Historic Site. And in one of these wooden framed buildings, known as the Arts Hall, the history of this mysterious place is on display. Here, among the vintage ornaments and old time musical instruments, is a curious artifact that, according to author Gary Jansen, tells the tale of a bizarre community that once
4: lived here, but today is long gone. The artifact is two and a half feet tall by three feet wide, made of lacquered wood with brass fittings.
2: And there is more to this odd-looking orb than initially meets the eye. Then you notice the sphere opens up. And on the inside of the sphere is a very familiar design. So what is this intriguing artifact? And what role did it play in the rise and fall of a bizarre religious cult? It's the mid-1860s, and the world is in the throes of a scientific revolution. Recent developments in the understanding of electricity have given rise to a host of new ideas about the natural forces that govern the world. And one man immersed in these theories is an ambitious physician named Cyrus Teed. In 1869, Teed is in his laboratory in upstate New York, investigating the possible healing effects of electricity on the human body when he achieves an utterly unexpected result.
4: Teed accidentally electrocutes himself and he was knocked unconscious. He has what we would call today a near-death experience. When he comes to, he claims to have had an extraordinary dream. Cyrus Teed had a vision of God in the form of a beautiful woman, and she bestowed upon him the secrets of the universe. Teed claims that the mysterious deity
2: told him that the planet Earth is actually a hollow sphere, that the ground we live on is in fact on the inside of that sphere, and that the sun, moon, and stars are contained within another orb that inhabits this hollow Earth. The strange-looking orb that now sits in the art hall at the Koreshian State Historic Site was inspired by Teed's vision and is a physical
4: representation of this mind-bending view of the world. When you opened it, the continents and the ocean were on the inside walls of this globe. And in the middle was a much smaller ball, which comprised the stars, the sun, and the moon.
2: But this isn't all that Teed concludes from the female god's appearance. Teed is now convinced that men and women are created equal. The secret to purity is celibacy— And his mission is to establish
4: a new society based on these principles. The goddess also told him, and this was Zener, that he was the new messiah. She also explains
2: that he has been granted the gift of immortality. Teed wastes no
4: time doing his new mistress's bidding. Teed takes a new name, Koresh, which is actually the Hebrew word for his own name, Cyrus, but means the anointed one. And naming these new beliefs Corishanity, Teed is surprisingly quick to gain a large following. People described him as having a voice that could motivate people to do things you would never expect them to do. In 1893,
2: with a congregation of followers established, Teed identifies a tract of land in Florida as the perfect place to set up a utopian community. But for those who live in this new society, there
4: are strict rules to abide by. In order to join Koresh's community, a person had to sign over all their worldly goods to him. And for all men and women,
2: including married couples, intimacy is forbidden. But in spite of these strictures, Teed has no shortage of would-be converts, and by 1906 has amassed a small fortune. But his own ruthless ambition is about to trigger a downward spiral that will bring his hollow earth cult to its knees. It's the early 1900s, in Estero, Florida. A charismatic preacher named Cyrus Teed believes that the earth is hollow and that humans live inside the sphere. He's even managed to convince hundreds of his followers that his theories are real. But his own desire for wealth and power is about to get the best of him. In an attempt to avoid paying local taxes, Teed embarks on a political campaign to become independent from nearby Fort Myers. And that does not play well with residents.
4: Tensions are running high in, in neighboring communities because everyone thinks that these people are nuts. At a local political meeting, tensions boil
2: over and Teed is injured in a brawl. Teed is beat within an inch of his life. On December 22, 1908, at the age of 69... Cyrus Teed dies from his injuries. But his followers truly believe in Teed's immortality and expect
4: their leader will come back to life. So Teed's body laid there for almost a week, decaying, until a health inspector said that you have to bury the body. So they quickly created a concrete crypt, placed him inside, and posted a guard to watch over him. But when a tropical hurricane
2: hits the Florida coast, Teed's tomb is washed out to sea. In the wake of the tragedy, some of Teed's followers leave the cult. For those that remain, it's one of the core teachings of Koreshanity that proves to be the final nail in the coffin, celibacy.
4: Without any children to keep their numbers up, the Koreshians slowly dwindled until there were only about four left around 1960. Although Teed's dream
2: of building a heaven on earth fell apart, the utopian village he created still stands at the Koreshian State Historic Site. And the empty, hollow earth globe serves as a haunting reminder of the rise and fall of one of the nation's first cults and the man behind it. Washington, D.C., America's proud capital home of government and law enforcement agencies working to protect the nation. And it's also home to an institution dedicated to the transgressive aspects of human behavior. This is the National Museum of Crime and Punishment. Here, you can see Bonnie and Clyde's getaway car, a medieval execution device, and the gun of Jesse James. But there's one small artifact here that tells a surprisingly grand story.
6: The artifact is about the size of a fingertip, silver in color, and it's made of zinc and small traces of nickel.
2: According to retired Deputy Police Chief Wendell Watkins, this item sparked
6: one of the most heated debates of the gangland era. This has got to be one of the most controversial bullets in America. So how is this slug linked to a legendary
2: event that remains shrouded in mystery? It's 1933. The Great Depression is in full swing. And in this crippling economy, some turn to crime to make ends meet, giving rise to a new gangster era. And one of the nation's most notorious outlaws is bank robber and escaped convict Frank Nash. Missouri, June 17th. After a three-year manhunt, the Bureau of Investigation has finally caught Nash hiding outside state lines and is transporting him by train to Kansas City. When they reach the station, a group of law enforcement officers
6: escort him to a car. But then, out of nowhere, chaos strikes. They were suddenly approached by three gunmen, and then a round of gunfire erupted. It seems the assailants
2: are fellow gangsters attempting to free Nash. But the escape goes horribly awry. The bloody shootout kills three police officers,
6: a federal agent, and Frank Nash himself. For criminals to be that blatant in public, to kill four law enforcement officers, was just unheard of at the time, was just bold and brazen. The story coined the Kansas City Massacre, stuns people across the country. There's a public outcry for swift justice. <sighs> something needs to be done, and needs to be done right away. And no one wants the case solved more than
2: J. Edgar Hoover. The head of the Bureau of Investigation has staked his career
6: on bringing down the nation's gangland criminals. Hoover was outraged that uh, something like this would happen and that he lost one of his agents. He promises the public that the perpetrators will be brought to justice, and
2: launches an investigation. And soon, the Bureau unearths a critical clue. It seems one of Nash's friends, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, was spotted in Kansas City on the very day of the massacre.
6: Charles Pretty Boy Floyd was a lot of things. He was a gangster, he was a bank robber, and he was a killer. To J. Edgar Hoover,
2: Floyd's presence in town could mean only one thing. He is
6: responsible for the bloody attempt to free Frank Nash. Hoover fingers Pretty Boy Floyd as his number one suspect. An army of federal agents embarks on an extensive manhunt, but the elusive criminal manages to stay one step ahead of the law. They tracked Pretty Boy Floyd up to New York, back down to Ohio, and he'd always elude them. He was an embarrassment for the Bureau.
2: Finally, after a 16 month long search, the feds get a break. A farmer in Westville, Ohio reports that a man fitting Floyd's description is in a broken
6: down car on the side of the road. Jed Hoover notifies his field agents to scatter and surround that area. This was an opportunity to bring him to justice. Will they finally nab their number one suspect?
2: It's 1934. After a 16-month manhunt, J. Edgar Hoover and his Bureau of Investigation have finally tracked down their main suspect in the Kansas City Massacre, the elusive and notorious Charles Pretty Boy Floyd. But will Hoover and his feds finally get their man?
6: One official saw Pretty Boy Floyd exit the vehicle with a weapon, with his ability to evade, capture, They knew it could be now or never. Agents take aim and fire. And Floyd is struck with
2: this bullet, now on display at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment. The wounded gangster writhes in pain and pleads his innocence.
6: Uses his last breath to deny that he had any involvement in the Kansas City massacre.
2: With their number one suspect dead, Hoover deems the mission a success.
6: J. Edgar Hoover's reaction was that this was definitely a home run for him and his agency. But as the public learns of Floyd's death, some begin
2: to question whether he was really responsible. While he was spotted in
6: town on the day of the massacre, it seems that no one can place him directly at the scene of the crime. Eyewitnesses definitely do not finger... Pretty Boy Floyd for the Kansas City Massacre. So why did Hoover
2: target Floyd?
6: Perhaps it was a personal vendetta. Charles Pretty Boy Floyd was a thorn in his side. Some believe that this was an excuse for Hoover to
2: finally take out a longtime nemesis, with the massacre providing the perfect cover. To this day, many still debate if the wrong man
6: was accused of the legendary shootout. And if the real killer got away scot-free... It's interesting how this case occurred over 80 years ago, but yet it's still a mystery. And this bullet remains on display at the National
2: Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C. A reminder of the controversial death of a notorious outlaw. Sebastian, Florida is known for its white sand beaches crystal-clear water and its impressive state park, which is also home to the McClarty Treasure Museum. From maritime weapons to model ships, the artifacts in this collection celebrate the history of the early settlers and seafarers who first set foot upon these shores. But according to park ranger Edward Perry... There's one relic here that tells a modern tale of a relentless quest for riches.
7: It is cold, dense, shiny, and about the size of a poker chip. The engraving appears to be a shield on one side and a cross on the other side.
2: This tiny piece of silver might seem insignificant, but it played a crucial role in one of the most extraordinary treasure hunts of all time. So where did it come from? And how did it lead one man on a quest to unlock one of the richest secrets of Florida's seas? Sebastian, Florida, 1950. Building contractor Kip Wagner is out strolling the beach when something catches his eye. An irregular piece of rusted metal. As he examines its unique markings, Wagner realizes that he is holding an ancient Spanish coin. Thinking he may have stumbled on the site of a pirate's buried treasure, Wagner keeps digging in the sand.
7: Kip got better and better at finding these coins. He eventually had amassed about 40 or 50 coins in his collection. But the ultimate source of these tarnished relics remains a
2: mystery. Desperate to uncover the origins of the intriguing coins, Wagner researches the history of the area, and one day discovers a story that he thinks could lead him to the answer. July 24, 1715, Havana, Cuba. A fleet of about a dozen Spanish ships set sail. The vessels are loaded with precious cargo, and they're headed for home.
7: They had spices, metals, gold, gems, jewelry and lots and lots of silver. They say that it was a dowry for the Queen of Spain, and this is the dowry that she was waiting for before she would consummate her marriage with King Philip V. But after
2: only a week at sea, winds suddenly pick up at an alarming rate, and massive swells surround the fleet.
7: They had a full-fledged hurricane on them coming out of the east.
2: At the mercy of wild currents, the ships are blown shoreward and smash against Florida's coastline.
7: It's a tragedy of epic proportions. We believe there was about seven to 900 that died in this disaster.
2: Reeling from the news, the King of Spain sends relief boats for the survivors and stages a recovery mission for the Queen's dowry.
7: The Spanish stayed on this site for up to four years and worked hard trying to recover what they could. The
2: royal quest to recover the treasure eventually ends in failure, and the wreck's location is lost in the mists of time. Now, with his knowledge of the 1715 fleet, Kip Wagner begins to wonder, did the coins he discover come from this fabled treasure? And if so... Where is the wrecked fleet now? It's the 1950s. Building contractor Kip Wagner believes that the weathered old coins he's found along the Florida coastline belong to a lost wreck of a fleet of Spanish ships that sank hundreds of years ago. So can Wagner find the missing ships? Determined to track down the loot, Wagner scours Maritime Archives and finally learns of a rare book from 1775, which seems to hold a crucial clue to the mystery.
7: In that book was a map. On that map, there was the evidence that they had been looking for. The fleet had sunk right near present-day Sebastian Inlet.
2: This narrow channel of water on Florida's east coast is known for its powerful currents and capricious tides. Hoping to find the sunken fleet, Wagner assembles a team of would-be undersea prospectors. But pinpointing the cache is a daunting task.
7: There really was not the technology like we have today. There was no GPS, there were no underwater metal detectors. What they had was basically their ingenuity. After two years
2: of tirelessly combing the waters, Wagner and his team find no trace of the missing ships.
7: And they basically came up with nothing.
2: It seems the treasure of the 1715 Spanish fleet will be lost forever. But Wagner will not give up so easily. And one afternoon in 1961, the group heads out on yet another trip
7: in search of evidence of the wreck. They took their boat out through Sebastian Inlet. And even though it was a cold, blustery day and a very windy day, they still had clean water conditions.
2: As they scour the ocean floor, a diver notices an unusual-looking rock.
7: Something intrigued him about it, and he eventually saw another one. And through some work, they finally got these very heavy objects back to shore.
2: After they chip away layers of debris, they're in awe of what they discover.
7: To their amazement, these turned out to be treasure chests of solid silver coins.
2: About a decade after starting his quest, Kip Wagner has finally found the source of the elusive silver coins, the wreck of the ill-fated flagship Capitana.
7: They were all very excited. This was it. They had found treasure.
2: And it's just the first of many finds for Kip Wagner and his company. Over the next few years, they recover an estimated $20 million worth of riches, some of which can be found here at the McClarty Treasure Museum. And it all started with one man discovering a silver coin like this one on a beach. It will forever remind us of one of the most successful treasure hunts of all time. From a bloody trunk to a deadly bullet, a curious globe to sunken treasure. I'm Don Wildman and these are the mysteries at the museum.